So I'm going to talk about the Montana Trail or the Utah Trail, depending on which way you were traveling on it, it had a different name. I chose Montana Trail because most of the traffic, at least initially, came into Montana. A succession of fabulously rich gold strikes in the early 1860s brought thousands of gold seekers rushing to the area that's now southwest Montana. They came by a number of routes, including up the Missouri River by steamboat or over the dangerous Bozeman Trail, and John kind of disappointed because he didn't talk about dangerous stuff. Probably the most reliable and safest route to the new gold fields was the Montana Trail north from Salt Lake City in southern Idaho over Manida Pass into the Beaverhead River drainage of southwestern Montana. So if you've driven to Pocatello, Idaho, or to Salt Lake City on Interstate 15, you've traveled along the approximate route of the Montana Trail. The trail was vitally important in the 1860s for the movement of people and freight to and from the Montana gold fields. With the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad across northern Idaho in 1869, the Montana Trail became even more important as a freight route into Montana territory. In the late 1870s, the trail became the route for construction of the Utah and Northern Narrow Gauge Railroad, which ran into southwest Montana. My friend Roberta Jones Wallace drew this map for me, so uh, it probably wouldn't function for uh, navigating the route from Salt Lake City to Helena, but it'll show you the approximate route. The Montana Trail followed a natural travel corridor relatively free of barriers, the major obstacles being the Snake River in central Idaho and the comparatively gentle Manida Pass over the Continental Divide, which now marks the Idaho-Montana border. From the Beaverhead country, gold seekers could easily reach all the gold camps of southwest Montana or even the little farming community of Bozeman. In the golden age of the fur trade in the 1820s and 30s, this route north was used by British and American fur trappers to reach the beaver-rich waterways of southwest Montana from the barren lava plains of South Idaho. And in 1841, the Bidwell Party pioneered a wagon road west across the interior of the continent from the Missouri River. And this road forked in southern Idaho with the right fork leading to Oregon, the left fork to California. Six years later, the Mormon Trail would share this route along the Platte River over South Pass before turning southwest to the Great Salt Lake. This corridor of roughly parallel wagon trails leading variously to California, Oregon, or the Mormon colony at Great Salt Lake became known as the Emigrant Road. The route north, which would become the Montana Trail, left the Emigrant Road in southeast Idaho at Fort Hall, a Hudson's Bay Company post founded in 1834. In the 1860s, many gold hunters bound for Montana on the Emigrant Road would take the same turn north at Fort Hall. Jesuit father Jean de Smet journeyed to the Bitterroot Valley, what's now western Montana, in 1841 to found St. Mary's Mission to the Flathead Indians. DeSmet's party initially traveled west on the Emigrant Road with the Bidwell Party before turning north near Fort Hall to come into Montana by the way of the headwaters of the Beaverhead River. 
Mormon pioneers fleeing persecution in Illinois and excuse me in Illinois and Missouri founded Salt Lake City in 1847. In the Salt Lake Valley, the Mormons prospered through their skillful management of the fertile farmland watered by well-engineered irrigation projects. By the mid-1860s, the Salt Lake Colony was able to grow enough extra food to supply travelers on the emigrant road some 175 miles to the north. Salt Lake City was also the distribution center for a variety of goods sold to travelers on the emigrant road and throughout the entire central Rockies. In 1860, John Owen leased the site of St. Mary's Mission in the Bitterroot Valley from the departing Jesuit Fathers. He built Fort Owen nearby. Over the next decade, Owen made infrequent trading trips by way of the Beaverhead River drainage to Cantonment Loring, the American army camp near Fort Hall. He also traveled to Salt Lake City. Lieutenant John Mullen, and I see these last two gentlemen share the same uh, hairstyle. <laughs> Lieutenant John Mullen surveyed several routes between Fort Owen and Cantonment Loring in 1853 and reported that the route via the Beaverhead watershed was the better route of the longer. He said in his report, there is no difficulty whatever in the passage of wagon trains by this route. James and Granville Stewart, returning from the California gold fields, traveled north along the route of the Montana Trail in 1857 to avoid the Mormon War, which had made the emigrant road unsafe. And uh, Granville Stewart later described their first impressions upon crossing Menida Pass into what's now Montana. He said, As soon as we crossed the divide, a wonderful change occurred in the country. Instead of the gray, sagebrush-covered plains of Snake River, we saw smooth, rounded hills and sloping benchland covered with yellow bunch grass that waved in the wind like a field of grain. A beautiful, little, clear stream ran northwest on its way to join the Missouri River. So at the end of the 1850s, the route that became the Montana Trail was a well-established natural corridor passable by wagons, which led northwest from Salt Lake City and the Emigrant Road. Uh, the trail was only lightly used because it gave access to an area that was very sparsely populated. And that situation was about to abruptly change. Gold was discovered on the Clearwater River of what's now the Idaho Panhandle in the summer of 1860. Because the Clearwater mines could best be reached from the south by a route through the Bitterroot Valley, a stampede of hopeful miners caused a sudden increase in traffic on the route north into Montana from the Emigrant Road and Salt Lake. In July of 1862, the rich gold strike at Grasshopper Creek in southwest Montana resulted in an inrush of gold seekers to that area. And this is, of course, Bannock, which grew from that strike. The first miners to arrive were those that were, had already been in the Rocky Mountains when gold was discovered at Grasshopper. Miners bound for the Idaho mines diverted to the new diggings, as did unlucky gold seekers from the mines around Denver, and discouraged California miners traveling back east on the Emigrant Road. The first miners arrived at Grasshopper Strike with some food, supplies, and equipment, but food quickly began to run short. The nearest source of food, clothing, and mining supplies was Salt Lake City, more than 400 miles to the south. 
In late summer, a few men volunteered to make the trip from Grasshopper Diggings to Salt Lake City to bring back food and supplies. But before these volunteers were ready to depart, a wagon train run by Mormon freighters arrived at the diggings loaded with provisions and a full supply of an al alcoholic refreshment they called Valley Tan. Now, uh, I'm not going to tell you the entire list of ingredients for Valley Tan other than to tell you that the uh, active ingredients were alcohol and strychnine. And Valley Tan was certainly not a beverage for the persnickety tippler. The Mormon wagon train that brought relief to the miners at the Grasshopper Diggings in September of 1862 was the beginning of the industry of freighting food and supplies to the Montana gold fields in return for some of that gold. At the diggings, men who wanted to profit from the wealth being produced without mining themselves started businesses to supply the miners and the town of Bannock, shown here, quickly grew up. In November of 1862, Granville Stewart opened a butcher shop in Bannock in conjunction with a grocery store run by Frank Woody, who also had stores at Hellgate, west of Missoula, and in the Deer Lodge Valley. Woody's stock came from steamboats, which docked at Fort Benton during high water. But Granville Stewart noted in his memoirs, 40 Years on the Frontier, a number of men who had wagons or mules and oxen turned their attention to freighting, going to Salt Lake and returning with supplies. There was so little snow on the divides that these freighters crossed all winter without difficulty. This was most fortunate because there were so many people in the country and no supplies whatever. Had the winter been severe with deep snow, many would have perished from starvation. So that winter of 1862-1863 at Bannock Freighting in of food and supplies was very unorganized and sporadic. In the next few years, the industry of freighting from Salt Lake into Montana exploded. Well, let me say here that the competition to deliver freight to Montana gold camps between Montana Trail freighters hauling north and freighters hauling south from the steamboat levee at Fort Benton was ongoing through the 1860s and 70s. The river route had the disadvantage of offering departures during only a very narrow window in the spring when the Missouri River was high. And it was never certain just how far up the Missouri River the cargo could actually be delivered. But the river route offered the possibility of transporting huge heavy loads of material and equipment to within a couple hundred miles of the gold fields. While those freighting from Utah had to haul their cargo more than 400 miles in wagons. Until the 1869 completion of the Transcontinental Railroad across northern Utah leveled the playing field somewhat, Montana freight shipped overland had to travel altogether more than 1,200 miles by wagon. In the summer of 1863, Bill Fairweather and party struck it rich on Alder Gulch. Of course, Virginia City grew from that strike. And the summer after that, the four so-called Georgians panned high-paying colors of the Last Chance Gulch the beginning of the settlement of Helena. When the Alder Gulch strike became well known, many of the established freighting firms in the Rocky Mountains began their, routing their wagon trains north on the Montana Trail to the gold fields. 
With the permission of Brigham Young, many Mormon men entered the freighting business also. I uh, suppose this was seen as another good way to bring hard currency into the Salt Lake community. In April of 1864, the company that became the hugely successful Diamond R Transfer Company was organized in Montana and hauled its first cargo, a load of hides from Virginia City to Helena. Well, luckily for the freight companies and the residents of the mining camps, the main obstacle on the Montana Trail, Menida Pass, was not formidable as Rocky Mountain Passes go. Approaching from the south, the freighters came to the pass through a pleasantly wooded valley they called appropriately Pleasant Valley. The north side of the pass is gently sloping prairie. In mild years, freighters could move through the pass all winter, if not with wagons drawn by mules or oxen, then with pack trains of mules. When hard winters closed the pass completely, sometimes trapping freighters on the road, high food prices and even starvation threatened the Montana gold camps. In the early 1860s, the residents Shoshone and Bannock Indians along the Montana Trail were initially aggressive in defense of their home territory against the increased traffic to and from the Montana and Idaho gold fields. But in January of 1862, the U.S. Army massacred a gathering of Shoshones at Bear River in southern Idaho, effectively ending organized Indian attacks on the trail, although 15 years later, the Nez Perce retreat disrupted travel on the trail for several months, and the, the Indians were long gone, but the freighters were re reluctant to go north and find out if that was true. With the increase of traffic north, enterprising individuals made improvements on the trail, such as ferries, bridges, and improved roads. For their initiative, they were allowed by ter territorial laws to collect tolls from travelers. When Edwin Purple brought a small wagon train north from Salt Lake City in July of 1862, he found 20 to 30 wagons in front of him waiting to cross Jake Meek's newly established ferry across the Snake just north of Fort Hall. Purple was delayed at the ferry for nearly a week, getting his six freight wagons and all his stock across the river. His oxen all had to swim, and he paid a substantial toll. At Eagle Rock Chasm, which is in the center of today's Idaho Falls, the mighty snake is only 83 feet across. Freighter Matt Taylor and his crew bridged the snake in the winter of 1864-65 by starting their work on the thick ice of January. In the spring, the Eagle Rock Bridge was ready to receive toll traffic. And you can still see Matt Taylor's bridge in Idaho Falls today. It's been rebuilt. It's now made of steel. In 1869, it was calculated that a single wagon loaded with 4,500 pounds of freight would, would pay $48 in tolls on its journey from northern Idaho to the Montana gold fields. And that would be about $800 in today's money. These kinds of tolls were, as you can imagine, quite unpopular with freighters. The 1869-1870 Montana Territorial Legislature adopted measures to protect travelers. For example, a nearby ford could not be blocked by a ferry or bridge operator to increase his business. With the coming of the railroad, the furor about excessive tolls subsided somewhat. In November of 1862, a firm organized by Jack Oliver, an old California gold seeker, announced that it intended to run a weekly coach from Bannock to Salt Lake City during the summer 
and a monthly express during the winter. Through the summer and fall of 1863, the Oliver Line conveyed passengers and mail reportedly via a covered wagon drawn by Indian ponies. A primitive affair to be sure. Passengers had to bring along their own provisions. The next spring, Oliver's company was joined by three others hauling passengers and mail on the Montana Trail. The Western Stagecoach Magnet, Ben Holliday, entered the competition in 1864, although Holliday surrendered the route to Wells Fargo and Company in 1866. A variety of wheeled conveyances served for the transport on the Montana Trail. Most deluxe was the Concord Coach, seen here. Its upper section was suspended by leather straps called thorough braces, which lessened the jolting of the ride on rough roads. It also eased the strain on the horses. The Concord coach was designed to carry nine passengers inside and the driver and a shotgun guard on the driver's seat. But these capacities turned out in practice to be just suggestions, considering that the stage companies could charge full fare for extra bodies. Nor could a passenger purchasing a ticket be sure that he or she would be riding in a Concord coach. When Mrs. Wilbur Fisk Sanders traveled from Virginia City to Salt Lake City in February 1866, she rode in coaches and sleighs, and twice she rode in a lumber wagon. In addition to the Concord coach, there was a less comfortable, lighter stage or mud wagon with just a canvas-covered roof and canvas-covered curtains, and does the mud wagon. Worse yet was a two-horse jerky. Episcopal Bishop Daniel S. Tuttle gave this account of his experience riding in a jerky. He said, A jerky was a small canvas-covered affair, seating four inside, one outside with the driver, and drawn usually by only two horses. This, when the wheels struck obstacles, did not have the easy roll and swing of the coach, but as the name implies, jerked the passengers unmercifully on or off or off his seat. During that last 50 miles of the Boise trip, I was more used up physically than any other time I can think of in my life. The experience made me understand the stories I had heard of the stage passengers who could not sleep, coming in after long journeys, downright sick, and even actually demented. <laughs> A stage driver usually drove 50 or 60 miles between home stations, stopping only at change stations every 10 or 12 miles to change teams. Stage could average 12 to 15 miles per hour in this manner in good weather. In good conditions, the trip from Virginia City to Salt Lake City could be made in as little as three days. However, on steep sections in mud or snow, passengers might be required to walk. In really bad winter conditions, the same trip could take more than a week. On one December 1863 trip from Virginia City to Salt Lake City, stage company employees actually abandoned their snowbound wagon and its passengers on the road by riding away on the mules. In the early days of staging on the Montana Trail, the chief fear for drivers and passengers was road agents. Stages were tempting targets for robbers because they often carried gold shipments and the passengers could also be profitably shaken down. Sharing the driver's seat was the shotgun messenger protecting the mail and the other valuables of the coach. 
After the vigilantes pretty much cleaned out the Montana road agents in the winter of 1863-64, travel was a lot safer on the Montana Trail, but robbery still occurred. An article in the March 19, 1878 Idaho World commended shotgun messenger Mike Burke for his brave defense of his assigned coach against robbers, but the story included one unfortunate detail. It said, Mike was on the hind seat and he used the driver for breastworks. <laughs> Stage stations on the route between Montana and Salt Lake City vary greatly in the quality of their accommodations. On the Ben Holiday line, meals cost from $1.25 to $2, and the menu rarely varied from bacon, beef, and baking powder biscuits. But fortunately for stage passengers, good advice was available before they traveled. The Omaha Herald provided tips for passengers on overland stages. In cold weather, don't ride with tight-fitting boots, shoes, or gloves. When the driver asks you to get off and walk, do so without grumbling. He won't request it unless absolutely necessary. If the team runs away, sit still and take your chances. If you jump, nine out of ten times, you will get hurt. <laughs> Don't growl at the food received at the station. Stage companies generally provide the best they can get. Don't keep the stage waiting. Don't smoke a strong pipe inside the coach. Spit on the leeward side. <laughs> Don't swear or lop over neighbors when sleeping. Never shoot on the road as the noise might frighten the horses. Don't discuss politics or religion. Don't point out where murders have been committed, especially if they're women passengers. Don't lag at the wash basin, and don't grease your hair because stage travel is dusty. In the spring of 1869, crews constructed Union Pacific Railroad tracks across northern Utah as they pushed their way west to meet the Central Pacific being built east from California. There was intense competition among investors in northern Utah to determine the site that would serve as the junction for the stage and freight lines hauling north to Montana. Among the sites in competition for the junction was Little Connor City, which had started as a construction camp on the Union Pacific. Connor City was five miles north of Great Salt Lake on the west bank of the Bear River. In January of 1869, there was a saloon, several merchants, and a sort of a hotel in Connor City. When John Hanson Beadle visited Connor City the next month, he reported, there is no newsstand, post office, or barber shop. The citizens wash in the river and comb their hair by crawling through the sagebrush. <laughs> in spite of these modest beginnings, on March 27, 1869, the Union Pacific announced that Connor City had been selected as the location of the Montana Junction. But just two weeks before the junction was announced, Connor City's principal founder had uh, changed his name in, in honor of his 14-year-old daughter. He had uh, named it, anybody know? Corinne. Corinne, exactly. Certainly the town's location on the Bear River had swayed the decision because the, the river provided pure water and abundance for its inhabitants and for the thousands of draft animals that would be based there. 
From Corinne, an excellent freight road up the Milad Valley toward Montana was quickly constructed. Freighting companies, including the huge Diamond R and the Fred J. Keisel Company, built warehouses at Corinne. Stage outfits, which had run from Salt Lake City to Montana, quickly moved their operations to Corinne. The establishment of the freight forwarding complex at Corinne allowed freighters on the Montana Trail to be competitive for the first time with freighters hauling to the Montana goldfields from Fort Benton. Although shipping rates for steamboat transport remained substantially lower than the rates charged by the Union Pacific. The telegraph had been extended to Virginia City and to Helena in 1866 so that Montana merchants could now order goods from the east or west coast and have them shipped to Corinne on the railroad. When it was announced that the eastern firm of Graham, Morris, and Company expected to establish a facility at Corinne for forwarding goods to Montana, 43 leading Helena merchants sent the company the following telegram. Gentlemen, learning that you intend establishing a fast freight line from New York and other cities to this and other points in the territory via railroad to Corinne, thence by wagon train, we desire to tender you our support. Navigation on the Missouri River is so precarious that we are anxious to avail ourselves of a route which offers a guarantee of the prompt delivery of our consignments. In 1871, the Diamond R and also Hugh Kirkendall's fast freight and express line began an express freight service, taking only eight days from Corinne to Helena using relays of teams like the stagecoach did. And regular freight service from Corinne to Helena could take as much as a month. By the spring of 1870, Corinne received substantial shipments by rail, the types of goods which had formerly gone to the Montana gold camps via steamboat to Fort Benton. Corinne's first year, 1869, so that over 500 tons of freight bound to Montana via the Union Pacific had been received and dispatched. The next year, the total was nearly 3,500 tons. Well, I wondered how much that was, so I did a little checking. Uh, 3,500 tons would fill the cargo holds of 17 large Missouri River steamboats, and uh, today it would fill 160 semi-trailers. Stage traffic to and from Montana was brisk, and as many as 50 people a day disembarked at Corinne to outfit themselves with horses, rigs, and supplies for the trip north. Corinne also received large amounts of high-grade ore from the Montana mines to be shipped to eastern smelters on the Union Pacific. But all did not remain rosy for Corinne for long. In 1871, Mormon competitors for the Montana trade began construction of a narrow gauge Utah and Northern Railroad north from Ogden through Cache Valley. That's all to east of Corinne and the Malad Road. In 1874, the Utah and Northern completed its line to Franklin in extreme southern Idaho, and there construction bogged down, at least in part, because the Panic of 1873 had made capital hard to get. From 1874 to 77, the terminus of the Utah Northern remained at Franklin, Idaho, and a competition for the Montana trade was carried on between Corinne and Franklin. 
Franklin was closer to Montana, but the road from Corinne over the Malad Divide was much better than the marshy road north from Franklin. In October of 1877, news arrived that the giant Union Pacific had purchased the Utah Northern and was planning to extend the line north. The next year, the railroad was built all the way to Blackfoot, Idaho on the Snake River. That year's construction intersected the road north from Corinne over the Malad Divide, effectively ending the future of uh, Corinne as a shipping center in one blow, although Corinne held on through one more year of business. The large freight companies began constructing temporary warehouses at each terminus of the railroad as it was built north and then shifting their operations to the next terminus as construction of the U Utah Northern March toward Menida Pass. The stage companies also quickly moved operations from Corinne to the terminus of the Utah Northern. And 1878 was also the year when shipments to the Montana gold fields via the Union Pacific equaled shipments by the Missouri River through Fort Benton. And it was about 9,500 tons by each route. In the spring of 1879, the Utah Northern bridged the Snake River at Eagle Rock Chasm and continued construction toward Montana. The Utah Northern reached Menida Pass in March 1880 and then built track down the Beaverhead River in easy reach of Bannock in Virginia City, arriving in Butte, which was having a copper boom, in late 1881. The Utah Northern connected to the Northern Pacific at Garrison, west of Helena in 1884, and the Union Pacific converted the railroad to standard gauge in 1887. With the completion of the Utah Northern Railroad to Butte in 1881, the Montana Trail was no longer vital, vitally necessary for carrying people and fruit to and from Montana. That should be people and freight, not fruit. <laughs> okay. Uh, but some people preferred to travel the old way under animal power. They continued to use the trail for a short time. As better roads were constructed along the route, stretches of the trail simply disappeared from disuse. Although you can still see sections of it in places such as this stretch near Beaverhead Rock, north of Dillon. And I want to thank John Axline for this photo. There's, there it is in the old days. There it is now. And so the Montana Trail that made it possible for the southwest Montana mining towns to, sur to survive the winters without starving is no more. But its route has never ceased to be an important arterial for moving people and goods in, in the inland west. In 1926, construction began on US-91 along the general route of the old trail. Construction of Interstate 15 along the same corridor began in the late 1950s and was finally finished in the early 1970s. So the next time you drive to Salt Lake City, I hope you'll enjoy the scenery and I also hope that you will think at least a little about the now vanished Montana Trail. Thank you.